0: You're listening to the iHeart Radio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show.
1: Hello, Canada. Happy Monday, coast to coast to coast. So many things are different today. I'm in the studio, in the big show studio, and Samantha Pope, our producer for the first time ever is in studio with me, which is great. This is a sign of the COVID things. So Samantha's in studio with me, which is great. Chris is on the board at a different undisclosed location, just to keep him safe. We just keep that undisclosed. But that's good. So Sam's here. Uh, you're all here. It's a beautiful day, beautiful weekend. Um, we got lots on the show today. Uh, the former Prime Minister of Canada, Kim Campbell, uh, We'll have a conversation with her about abortion and the state of the Conservative Party. Patrick Brown, the um, one of the key candidates in the Conservative race, will join us for an exclusive interview. There is a huge debate in the Ontario election tonight. We're going to break that down. Those debates matter. This is a Doug Ford looks like he's cruising to victory, but if the NDP and the Liberal want to make any headway, tonight's the night. They got to do it. So we'll dig into all that. The weekend was, I got to deal with the Leafs, and I just want to say this to Leaf fans out there. Now, I was born and raised in Toronto. I lived most of my life in that city until basically I left... Uh, I went to, to University of Montreal, but when I was young, my older brother got a Leafs shirt and I got a Habs shirt, so I became a Habs fan. Now, it wasn't terrible because the Habs were winning all the time. So so I know this is anathema. I know you can't be both empathetic and like the Leafs and a Habs fan, but I am, and that's just the way I roll. Maybe it's my nonpartisanship at play here. But I like the Leafs. I root for the Leafs, but my heart is with the Habs. I'm a Habs fan. But my son, my son is a die-hard Leafs fan. Now, we live in Ottawa. He's, he's, he was born in Toronto, but he's lived most of his life in Ottawa. And his room is plastered with Leafs jerseys. His grandfather was a huge Leafs fan and gave him Leafs jerseys. He worships the Leafs. His best friend's a Leafs fan. And, and in his young teen years, he developed his first uh, Leafs ulcer, like all Leafs fans have. And he said to me, Dad, they're going to lose. Even when they were up 3-2. He said, I don't know. I just And I said, they're not going to lose. They're a great team. He said, Dad, you said that last year when they played the Habs. I said, and they were up 3-1. And I said, they, they should have beaten the Habs. But they're a great team. Mitch Marner is a great player. Austin Matthews is a great player. This is a solid team. Don't get into your head. And then it was three three and then they lose in overtime. On a good game, if you're a Leafs fan, I know you think you're you're cursed. You're jinxed. That's a good team. That team could have won. Do you rip it down and burn it? No, you don't. It sucks. I feel for you. I don't know what to say to my son because he has never been alive to see the Leafs win a single first round series. And they have found new ways to break his heart and all of your hearts if you're a Leaf fan. If you're not a Leaf fan, I don't know what pleasure you have, but it must be enormously pleasurable. So I just want to say, as the Oilers did what Oilers do, they win Game 7, and Conor McDavid became Connor McDavid again. What a guy. And the Flames won in a critical Game 7, so now you got the Battle of Alberta— Congrats to the Flames. Amazing job. What a Game 7. Congrats to the Oilers. Remarkable Game 7. And I love sports more than anything. But Leaf fans, you are in despair. I just wish the Leafs would put a psychiatrist on their payroll. And not one for the players, but for the fans. So every fan who buys a season ticket gets at least two therapy sessions. That's what I would do. If I was a leave fan. it's like, come, it's bobblehead night, and in between the second and third, there's a therapist and a couch, and Lee fans just lie down, and they talk about their problems. I remember growing up, the last series was the Ottawa Senators. Then they lost. And then you just go through it all, talk about it. Game seven. Austin. Sixty goals. And then you just get, cry, just cry. Just do it. Just cry. But we're really, we deserve it. We, and then just get it all out. So so here's my advice to Maple Leaf fans get some therapy. Um, I would advise you to take a drive on Sunday after the game, but gas prices are too high to take a I mean, like gas prices are over two bucks. The NDP tonight in the Ontario election are going to pitch basically wage like um price control that you can't raise the price on it. Do you really want government to intervene in the market? I'm really intrigued what you think the best way. Now, you could say delay the carbon tax 12 13 cents a liter. That will relieve some pain. But my god, it's it's it you know, it's going to go over 2 bucks eventually. I filled up for what like a buck 96. It sucks driving to I was driving to Toronto. By the way, if you think gas prices are going to go up, food prices are going to go up. You're probably not paying attention to this because you're smart. You're enjoying the sun. But the kind of thing that I do is look what's happening in India, where they've had a brutal heat wave there. That has, and so, so you think it's there's no climate change? The heat wave is so bad in in India that their entire crop of wheat production has been decimated, and so they've got to prioritize their domestic market. And in order to do that, they're going to, according to Prime Minister Modi, they're going to temporarily suspend exports. What? Russia, like, you have to understand, in the wheat world, Russia, Europe, the U.S., and Canada are the top exporters. But India is a big, big player, and without India and their exports, the price of wheat is going to go up. And of course, you got Russia, the war there. So, so you know, food prices are going to go up. So you got gas prices going up, food prices. These are not local governments' faults. Like this is this is what's happening. You got massive droughts and wars. Welcome to the world. Just follow that story. By the way there are crop setbacks in the last number of years because of a drought in north america and a drought in europe i'm telling you and you can hear it here first the most uncovered story in the world is droughts droughts in california lake mead is dropping to historic levels the, the united states is going to have a water shortage in the in the west That is so significant, it will become one of the dominant political issues for Canada and pricing water. Droughts are changing the world. Just wait. And it's already happening. But on the weekend, it wasn't about the Leafs and it wasn't about gas. It was about Buffalo. It was about hate. It was about an 18-year-old who went to a supermarket in Buffalo where so many Canadians do cross-border shopping and... Shot 13 people, killed 10, and 11 of them were black. He targeted African Americans. He targeted black Americans because he was a racist. And then he wrote a 180-page manifesto. I'm not going to say his name. And the manifesto's clear. The shooter was a proponent... He was an anti-Semite, he hates Jews, and he believes Jews have created a white replacement theory. This is, you heard this, this is this toxic theory that immigration is secretly some kind of conspiracy to replace white people. And Tucker Carlson on Fox News has talked about this, and we heard it in Pat King a lot, Pat King, the the leader of the trucker convoy who's sitting in prison, they talk about this. This is pure and utter racism. And we need to call it out. And one person that has done a superb job of calling this out is the Conservative Member of Parliament, Michelle Rempel-Garner. And she's up next because we can no longer pretend this stuff doesn't exist. She's going to jump on the show next. You don't want to miss this.
0: As your world changes, we adapt to get your answers. Now more with Evan Solomon.
1: During the uh, trucker protest in Ottawa, one of the lead members of the organizations, a guy that was in the front lines, was Pat King. I reported on him extensively. And Pat King, as I said many times on this show, is an avowed racist. He's spoken about it on many videos And many of his apologists said he wasn't. And I said he's he's a racist. He's talked about something called white replacement theory, that there's some kind of cabal. Um, Often in the white um, replacement theory, it's a bunch of Jews who are running some secret uh, plan to bring in immigrants to replace white people and dilute the vote. Um, these are theories that the 18 year old mass murderer in Buffalo, who is yet to be charged, but who went on a shopping spree and targeted black Americans, killing 10 people. 11 of the 13 he shot were black. His manifesto, he streamed it horrifically. And in his horrific manifesto of 180 pages, He said that this was about white replacement theory. He modeled himself on the white supremacist who murdered 51 people at a mosque in Christchurch, New Zealand. And this has been mainstream stuff. And someone who's called it out is Michelle Rempel-Garner. She's a conservative member of parliament. And I wanted to bring Michelle on. I'll tell you why. Because the idea that this can never happen here when this kind of theory is becoming it's tragically mainstreamed, and it has consequences. And Michelle Ruppel Garner, I think, is wise to call it out. And she joins me now. Hello,
2: hi, good afternoon,
1: Michelle. You know, you're a sitting member of Parliament, but you, um, and I, I think it's important, talk about your reaction and what you, what message you sent out in the wake of this mass. I hate calling it just a mass shooting. It was, it was a massacre.
2: Of course it was. And I mean, this is not the first time this has happened, and it's happened in Canada. Um, There are members of my community who have expressed to me the fact that they, they worry that something is going to happen to them. They're racialized Canadians, and they worry about the mainstreaming of this type of hate. And that's why it's important for everyone of every political stripe to denounce it. Uh, particularly in this case. So, you know, I, I just, when that type of thinking becomes normalized, even through silence, um, it allows it to flourish. And we all have a responsibility, given the miracle of a country that we live in, where we have a, a pluralism, where we have a lot of freedom to worship, et cetera. It's all of our responsibility to call that out and to denounce it and to denounce people that espouse those beliefs in a normalized way.
1: Michelle Rempel garner you tweeted out, the great replacement conspiracy theory is murderous. It's hate-filled. It's white supremacist propaganda that must be firmly denounced in every corner of every political party, and I do so today. If you espouse this belief, I stand against you. Silence is complicity. You and I both know that this is mainstreaming. I'm going to... Play you um, Tucker Carlson on Fox News. As I say this, because he's probably the most influential. Well, he is the most popular cable TV news show. Here's 21 seconds of him defending replacement theory.
3: The left and all the little gatekeepers on Twitter become literally hysterical if you use the term replacement. If you suggest that the Democratic Party is trying to replace the current electorate, the voters now casting mm. ballots, with new people, more obedient voters from the third world. But they become hysterical because that's that's what's happening, actually. Let's just say it. That's mm. true. Uh,
1: Michelle rommel he says that's true. This is what's happening. What's the answer to that? Um,
2: I, I just, I, I, I feel uncomfortable that we're platforming that, um, but it's racist. It, that comment there perpetuates a trope that uh, newcomers to Canada. Um, somehow, are evil or to be despised. When in fact, Canada, um, you know, has a labor shortage. Uh, we have, you know, a proud history of welcoming uh, persecuted people to Canada um, who have built our country. Um, it also others. That's a term that is used. It's, it others people to create division, um, so that you know, frankly. Um, that type of hate can become normalized and, you know, people become radicalized out of that. Right. Uh, that's crazy talk. Um, and it's, it's not just crazy, it's dangerous. And I guess for me, you know, we're two white people having this conversation, Evan. Um, I think that if you were talking to somebody who was from a racialized community in Canada, their reaction would be a lot stronger Um because of the effect that it has on on people that we have a responsibility to stand up for in this country. And I just, um, there are moments, there are inflection points when you have to stand up and be counted, and this is one of them.
1: I, I don't want to platform Tucker Carlson, but I will say this. the The argument is that the woke left, no one's ever going to call Michelle Rempel garner part of the woke left, I mean you're a long-standing member of the Conservative Party of Canada, but nonetheless, that the woke gatekeepers um, are afraid to talk about this, and they say everyone's making it a racial issue, this is Carlson's defense, but it's a voting rights question, it's just about vote, diluting voting rights, it's not about race at all, is that, again, I, I, like this idea that, you know, to call it out is, is to be part of the woke gatekeeper mob.
2: Um, well, the, the history of our country speaks otherwise. Um, people who colonized Canada um, actually removed and never gave voting rights to Indigenous persons in the country. So it's factually incorrect and whitewashing in Canada, number one. And number two, our country is based on the principles of pluralism. Uh, and that means that, uh, you know, people who choose to um, move to Canada and make it their home and become citizens, of course, they have voting rights. Um, And and the fact that like, again, like trying to other a group of people like to to assume that anybody who comes to Canada is going to vote one way like a mindless automaton is like or in this case, it's this clip you played the US like it's actually it's like it's just crazy. Right. But you can see like the problem that we have, Evan, is that. There is a lot of, it, and I'm not trying to make excuses here, right? But there are people in Canada who feel frustrated on the left and the right being out of work or, you know, you know, frustrated after two years of, you know, pandemic. And what's happening is polarization on both the right and the left are exploiting that, that, that feeling, uh, for rote cheap political points and, and also descending into this type of hate. And, you know, that's where it's really important that... Where do you see you know, it here in Canada? Say, this is not acceptable. Like, well, I, mean, I mean... Like because you, you people might
1: about, say this is an American phenomenon. What's your view?
2: Um, I mean, you, you, t- you talked about it at the start of your clip. I mean, you know, um, th- this this man that was, you know, had a senior role in the convoy that came through Ottawa, he had a long track record of espousing this type of philosophy. And... There's one example: the Quebec mosque shooting, the, um, the, the, the the attack on the Muslim family in London, Ontario, that is coming up to a one-year, um, you know, anniversary of that massacre. I mean, like the, the, the systemic racism in our justice system. I mean, like, like to think that it doesn't happen in Canada. I mean, I can understand the frustration and fear that certain racialized communities in Canada face because like even the fact that you and I are having this conversation going like, well, where do you see it happen? It's like, "What well, it happens?" Right. And we have to, you know, we have to acknowledge that. And I think it's really important, particularly when there's such a blatant example of it to, 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 to say otherwise. I'm like, look, I have not been perfect on that in my past. Um, but you know, and I just, and I hate always having to be the first out of the gate on this stuff, but like it has to be done. Right. And, um, you know, I I, I feel a duty to my community on that.
1: All right. Michelle Rumpel-Garner, I know by I just want to disclose uh, in the in the conservative race, you are working with whom Uh, Pat on the Pat Brown team? Correct. Yeah. Okay. So you're this is is, I have Pat Brown, a conversation with him coming up next. Um, Does he address this issue today?
2: Well, you know, one of the things that attracted me. To the Patrick Brown campaign was the focus on um, attracting a broader okay. um,
1: M- Michelle. Group of Michelle, people. hold on. I asked you a question at the end okay. of this whole darn segment, which is on me, Michelle Ruppelgaard. I got to take your commercial break as Pat Brown's on next. Thank you.
0: finding answers to all your questions. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show.
1: Well, there's a big debate tonight in the Ontario race, but the conservative race is, is odd. They, they have one more debate, the uh, French-language debate on May 25th, but... Patrick Brown, who served as the Conservative MP for 10 years under Harper, he stepped down. He then was the leader of the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party. Then he resigned. Doug Ford took over and won the majority. Then he went on to become a, um, the mayor of Brampton. And now he's running to lead the Conservative Party of Canada. Can he win? Um, he's running against Jean Charest and Patrick Brown and, uh, and uh, Pierre Polyev and Les and Lewis. Scott Aitchison and Roman Babber, what's his vision for the party? To find out, I sat down with them and I said, what is the, ch- the the biggest challenge facing your party
3: and the biggest threat to losing a fourth straight general election? Well, we've won the popular vote in previous elections, but we've been blown out in suburban Canada. So one of the challenges for the party is to make sure that we have that connectivity, those relationships in the areas of the country where we've been unable to properly convey our message and win. And so the challenge for the party is to grow. The challenge for the party is to bring in new supporters, new volunteers, and most importantly, new voters, so that we can actually form a government and not simply complain about the direction of the country.
1: Well, you're talking about complaining about the direction of the country. There's been a lot of nastiness within this debate. Look, all leadership races are combative. This one's nasty, and you know Mr. Polyevra has accused you of corruption, of being a liberal, of lying, and it's gone vice versa. How divided is this party right now in your view?
3: Well, certainly Mr. Polyev set the tone for the race when he launched uh, attacks on all his other leadership candidates uh, when they launched their campaigns. But listen, we have feisty uh, leadership debates in in the Conservative Party, but we do come together afterwards. Uh, We understand the responsibility we have to make sure um, we can have a united Conservative team up against the Liberals in in the next election. Um, my, you know, my opinion is I, I simply don't think Pierre Polyev can win the next election. It's one of the reasons that I'm I'm running. I don't want to see another four years of this Liberal NDP uh, coalition. I think the, the consequences for Canada are too grave.
1: Okay, well, we'll talk about why you don't think he can win, but let me talk about healing the party first. In 2016, when you were the Ontario PC leader, you said you wanted to lead a fiscally conservative, socially liberal party. You then called it a mistake to court social conservatives. Now you want to lead the federal conservative party. Social conservatives like Leslie Lewis are very influential. Is there a place for her and her supporters in a party after those kind of words?
3: Well, uh, Dr. Leslie Lewis is a friend of mine. I've known her for many years. And of course, there's a place for um, all conservatives uh, um, in, in the conservative family. And. You'll note that when I was the leader of the Ontario Conservative Party, there was a number of prominent social conservatives who got nominated during um, my time as Ontario Conservative Party leader. Um, And certainly, you know, I value their place in um, the federal conservative family. But what I've made it clear, and and, uh, I I think it's important for for leaders to be clear on where they stand on some of these issues, uh, like the issue of, of abortion, I've said that any government that I lead will not revisit it.
1: Okay, Uh, it it won't revisit it, but people want you to be clear. So uh, when you were a backbench MP in 2012, you voted yes on motion 312, which ostensibly would have ordered a new study on when life begins in in the womb and a review of the sorts of legislative authority that could be used to change existing laws. So there are some that says he says one thing, but he actually votes a different way.
3: Well, I'm not going to go back 10 years in time to different private member's uh, studies, but what I will say is uh, I am Uh, pro-choice. I will uh, protect a woman's right to to choose, uh, and uh, I made it very clear where a government that I lead uh, will stand. Let's go to another
1: key issue because we're trying to figure out what would the party look like under Patrick Brown carbon tax. As you know, Mr. ever accused you of flip-flopping on the carbon tax when you ran for the Ontario PC leadership. When asked, will the PC rescind the carbon tax in its entirety when you win government, you said that's an easy question. Absolutely, yes. Then at the 2016 PC convention after you won, you said you're in favour of putting a price on carbon. So which is it? Where do you stand on these now? A price on carbon, yes or no?
3: So, you know, when I was at the provincial level, obviously, we had to live with the legal framework that Justin Trudeau set up. Um, and when you're a provincial party leader, you know, uh, and the, the courts have shown this, um, that is the reality of, of what Justin Trudeau created. But I would rescind uh, his Justin Trudeau's carbon tax. And I think we're at a point right now in Canada, Evan, where you've got, you know, 10 provincial governments with... Impressive climate change plans, and I think it's fair to say um, we will respect the provincial jurisdiction to tax. Right. We'll, we'll respect the provincial jurisdiction to set their um, their, their climate change plans, um, and uh, um, you know, cancel this this Justin Trudeau Ottawa knows best approach.
1: Okay, because you had said climate change is a fact; it's a threat. We have to do something about it, and that's something that something includes putting a price on carbon. Now you're saying, okay, the federal government would impose it so you would not keep the current targets the federal government targets of cutting emissions by forty to forty five percent below twenty 2005 levels by 2030. You're clear, you would not keep that goal.
3: So let, let, let's be clear. The Liberals uh, have no plan to, to hit those targets. Uh, they have I, a plan. Whether they, you know, to be fair, they have a should,
1: plan. They may not hit them. That, no. It remains to be seen. But they, they do. They have pitched
3: every the plan. every tar- every target. They've, every target they've set, they've missed, Devin. What I'm saying is, together in a collaborative fashion, not an Ottawa knows best fashion. I believe Canada can be a leader in the world when it comes to. Um, combating climate change, which I believe is real and is a threat. Um, But I I don't believe um, Ottawa taking a baseball bat to the provinces is is, is the best way to achieve our goals. Healthcare:
1: Should there be more private options to alleviate the stresses on the system that COVID exposed?
3: I certainly think we should do more outside of the hospital. Um, You can do so in in a publicly funded fashion. I'll give you an example. We we went into this pandemic uh, with 91% of our hospital beds in use. In Brampton, we were over 100%. And so, you know, our hospital capacity has been challenged, and COVID um, really highlighted that. You know, despite the fact that Justin Trudeau is spending more money than ever before in Canadian history, right. he actually hasn't provided funding to the provinces to increase their hospital capacity. I'll give you some examples. What can we do outside the hospital? Long term care, we can do more. We can free up hospital capacity by doing more long term care, more home care. Look at cataract surgery. We're still doing cataract surgery in hospitals. You can do that um in a publicly funded manner outside of the hospital. But is it all public? Um, I just, I just want to get this on capacity. the record.
1: I know there's reforms and efficiencies, but just to, would Patrick Brown, if you were a leader, would mm-hmm. you allow for more public-private models and private healthcare yes or no? Because they're allowing it in Quebec, would you say yeah, experiment outside of the public system, more private healthcare?
3: Right now I'm looking at what we can do in a publicly funded manner outside of the hospital setting.
1: Okay, Pierre Poilievre says look the inflation is simple. It's uh, too much money chasing too few goods. He blames Justin Trudeau's fiscal policy, spending and support throughout COVID, but he blames the Bank of Canada uh, for its quantitative easing uh, dr- throughout the pandemic. He says he would fire the governor of the Bank of Canada, Tiff Macklin, uh, because inflation's at 6.7% and the target is 2%. He's failed in his job. He should be fired. Would you fire uh, the, the governor of the bank? And, and what do you make of that suggestion, blaming the Bank of Canada for the inflation rate?
3: Well, I think it's reckless to have political interference in, in the Bank of Canada, and this is um, something that uh, I think has shocked um, many economists and, and those in the financial markets across the country, that a Conservative would would suggest something like that. You know, frankly, the Conservatives, our strongest suit has always been that we'll take care of the economy, that we'll be good stewards of the economy. And, you know, this is a departure um, from the, the type of policy we saw from Stephen Harper. He would never have suggested something uh, like this, and so... I think it's, it's caused a lot of um, concern about the, the type of risky, reckless policies um, that, uh, that Pierre Polyev but would suggest. But what's risky and, about what? You know, what? go back to his signature. But
1: what's risky? Like, I'm just trying to understand this. Um, we haven't heard anyone say they'd fire the governor. I, I recognize that. But he's saying the governor of the bank's job is to keep inflation at 2% and it's at 6.7%. I'll hold him to account. What's wrong with that?
3: Well, there shouldn't be political interference in, in, in the Bank of Canada. And, and and the type of changes that he's suggesting in terms of um, how to challenge in, in inflation um, are just ludicrous. Okay, that's part one of our conversation with Patrick Brown. Look, I'm going to be frank. This
1: is setting up to be a Patrick Brown, Pierre Paulyer. I mean, I know Jean Charest and Leslie Lewis and Scott Aitchison and the Roman Baber are in there. But... Brown and, and and Paulie ever are going at it. And they're going at it on social media today. Pierre Paulie ever saying you can't trust Patrick Brown. I'm going to dig into that more why because of things he said about social conservatives and things he said about other issues. But Patrick Brown's pushing back. So we're going to talk more about the trust issue. Can you trust Patrick Brown? That issue next on part 2 of our conversation. Stay with us.
0: As this story changes, we react. This is The Evan Solomon Show.
1: His plan seemed simple, and it still does. He wants to win the Conservative leadership race by signing up more new members than anyone else. New members to the Conservative Party of Canada, specifically in cultural communities. That's how Patrick Brown won the Ontario PC leadership race. But can Conservatives trust that Patrick Brown can, can actually sign up members... For the party that people trust. Um, trust is a huge issue for Mr. Brown because, and Mr. Pierre probably ever has raised it. For example, in uh, 2018, Ontario's integrity commissioner said, Mr. Brown, that you broke ethic laws as the PC leader. Why? You did not disclose the rental income from a personal residence for your home on a loan that came from a would-be PC candidate. Mr. Polyev is right when he says you took a $375,000 loan payment to backstop a multi-million dollar mansion, like a $2.7 million house. I think you bought it for $2.3 million. What's your explanation to this? There's a housing crisis. How should voters trust
3: you? I think Pierre Polyev is resorting to nasty smears because Um, Frankly, he's not seeing the type of membership growth in his leadership campaign that I think he expected to. Um, And that's why he's resorting to attacking fellow Conservatives. Listen, I I had an integrity commissioner um, report that uh, had no penalty. It's simply recommendations on how to improve reporting. Conversely, Pierre Polyev is the only person in this race who had to sign a compliance agreement for uh, egregious... uh, ethics breaches. And so, you know, it's a, it's a little well, bit I, like, um, uh, it's, it's, it's more than a little bit hypocritical, but you know, that's that's leadership but, but, campaigns that get feisty, that, but, they get but nasty. I, I, but like, and I get yeah. it.
1: Uh, Mr. probably ever had that compliance agreement because mm-hmm. he wore a, a, a conservative logo when he was a minister. I get that. Mm-hmm. But just I just want to drill down. Failing to disclose rental income from a personal residence, from a loan, who, from a guy who then became a PC candidate, like what does that say?
3: Listen. The, the integrity commissioner investigated it, investigated it, and, and, and clearly there was no penalty. There was only recommendations on how to improve reporting. Um, and uh, I'm certainly happy to immediately adopt all those all those recommendations.
1: Uh, signing up memberships is your key issue, but that had been a huge issue after you resigned as the Ontario PC leader in 2018. Vic Fidelli, the NPP, stepped in as the interim leader, and he famously said he's now going to quote you know, root out the rod in the party. He said the party found 67,000 fewer members than the 200,000 you claimed to have signed up. Uh, and you had said, um, uh, and he said he wants to clean it up with an ethical party. Can, can Canadians trust that people that you're signing up are being done in an open, clear, and ethical way?
3: Listen, you know, the Ontario Conservative Party was in a period of of upheaval during that leadership race in 2018, uh, but regardless if you say that the party went from 10,000 to 160,000 or 10,000 to 220,000, you know I was responsible for the greatest membership growth Ontario Conservative Party had ever seen. Um, I've got full confidence that the federal party uh, has set up a, a very transparent uh, system for members to sign up. Every member has to use their own credit card check or personal debit, there are no prepaid visa cards, there are no cash memberships. It's very clear um, how everyone can sign up. And uh, I believe I'm going to bring thousands of of new Canadians, uh, of Canadians from every walk of life, from every corner of the country, into the Conservative family. And I think that's going to be healthy for the Conservative Party. I I truly believe the Conservative Party needs to reflect the country.
1: How how many? I mean, June 3rd is coming up, that's the big date. Uh, Are are you, because people are banding around a lot of numbers. Uh, can you give us a sense how big the membership drive is yet
3: you're going to have to wait till June fourth to hear about that evan you've been critical of
1: Pierre Paul for his support of what you call discriminatory policies, the proposed twenty fifteen niqab at uh, nikab ban at citizenship ceremonies, and the um, um hotline um, which was so infamous in there the barbaric practices hotline
3: it goes further than that though evan
1: yeah well,
3: it, it it goes much you, further well, are than you that?
1: alleging that yeah. Okay, because I, why, why? are you are you alleging in all that 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 Mr. Polyev is what racist? Is he? I, I'm trying to get at what you're you're alleging when you when you're you're raising these things, which was, by the way, part of a Harper government that you were also part of.
3: Well, I, you know, I've certainly made it clear throughout my political career that I never supported the uh, barbaric uh, tip line announcement, uh, a snitch line of Canadians. I didn't support Pierre Polyevs. A press conference on the NICAB ban. But more recently, you know, the, the vote uh, we had in the House of Commons only a few years ago on Islamophobia. Um, I believe in condemning hate against any faith. And I made that clear when we had the Islamophobia debate. Um, in the Ontario Legislature, I was very clear where I stood and every member of my caucus that I led in Ontario voted to condemn Islamophobia. Pierre Polyev took a different approach and that's part of his of his recent past and frankly I have to say Evan, I I go back to to Bill 21 where we had leading Conservatives like Pierre Polyev fully willing to accept um, uh, Bill 21 in Quebec just as recently as the last election and it's wrong and you know I've been very Uh, vocal on this a Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian and we should not permit second-class citizenship in this country and the fact that if you wear a turban or a hijab or a kippah or a cross you can lose your job Uh, a government job in Quebec is objectionable and this is a precedent I don't want to see in our country
1: okay just on but I just want to get at when you say he supports that what are you saying about him do you think he's Islamophobic
3: I'm saying he's on the wrong side of history, and how can you ever grow the party if you're on the wrong side of issues of, of, of equity? And if you look where the party's lost the, the most recent federal elections, it's in the areas that are the most diverse. And if we want to make those those inroads, if we want to beat Justin Trudeau and his liberal NDP coalition, you have to beat him in places like the GTA, where I have proven I can win. To be fair, he'll point out, hey, you were part of that
1: government in 20." 12, you had a newsletter, I've seen it, announcing Muslim women were banned from wearing face mm-hmm. coverings such as the Burke and the niqab unveiled at swearing oath ceremonies under the new rules. I know mm-hmm. it was a promotion for a ceremony of Jason Kenney. It was your government, your newsletter, you promoted it. So what's, if you hold him accountable for that, why can't you be held accountable for the same thing?
3: So listen, Evan, you're talking about um, CRG uh, newsletters done by the Conservative uh, Resource Group. Every time there's been a big issue. Um, that relates to equity um, and fairness in this country. I've been on the right side of history. And so I'm proud of my record, and I will compare it to any other candidate in terms of my commitment to create a a conservative party in a country where it doesn't matter who you love, where you're born, the color of your skin, or what God you worship, everyone will get equal opportunity, and I will fight for that.
1: All right, I got to leave it there. Uh, Patrick Brown, thanks for sitting down with us. I really appreciate it, and we'll look forward to seeing the membership numbers June 3rd and 4th. Sounds good. Okay, so there's lots going on there. One of the issues for him is trust. We'll see what happens with the membership. The other is the courtship of social conservatives. Um, The Pierre Polyev camp and Jenny Byrne have been pouring through uh, Patrick Brown's book and saying, you know, I respected Harper on page 44. And always felt he was brilliant, says Patrick Brown, but we did not see eye to eye. I was more of a red Tory. And... He said, I understood we had to play footsies with the religious right when I was in Ottawa and when I was part of the conservative coalition. I had to come to the view that I really didn't like these people because in my view, they were intolerant. So when I became leader of the party, I decided I wasn't playing this game. I wasn't going to accept support based on hating others. Page 108. So these clips are coming out. Now can he court the social conservatives or not? What's his view on the price on carbon? How is he... Signing up members. Those are questions that I put to Patrick Brown and he's going to answer. Uh, Pierre Polyev is putting them. Now, again, Mr. Brown putting those questions back to Mr. Polyev on support for the barbaric practices tip line and intolerance, especially in the wake of what's happened in Buffalo. So back and forth they go. So that's on the federal scene. But coming up next, the Ontario debate tonight at 630. There's a major debate and we're going to dig into what's at stake in Ontario tonight.
0: You're listening to the iHeart Radio Talk Network and this is the Evan Solomon show.
1: Is this the most important debate in the Ontario election? Uh, 6.30 Eastern tonight, uh, Ontario leaders for the uh, Progressive Conservatives. In that corner, Doug Ford, the front runner. Andrew Horvath, her fourth crack at it, the leader of the official opposition, the NDP. Stephen Del Who? Del Duca, the new leader of the Ontario Liberal Party. They were reduced to seven little seats. You could carry them in basically a minibus. They're hoping to expand the bus. And Mike Schreiner, you could put him on a moped. He's got one seat with the Greens. He wants to expand. He told me to three at least. Tripling the green vote. What should we look for tonight? Well, a guy who you need and truck to carry his knowledge of Ontario politics, Robert Benzi, the Queen's Park bureau chief for the Toronto Star. Benz, how was the weekend? It
4: was good, thanks, Evan. How about you guys? Stop, stop, stop. Don't give me the BS.
1: I want to talk, first of all, the Jays are in a slump.
4: Yeah, the Jays are in a slump, and then the Maple Leafs. And yes. then the
1: Maple Leafs. How, what, now what more, more concerns you? The slumping Jays, which they're going to rebound. I have total faith in that. It's a great team Yes, aren't they hitting. will.
4: They're a playoff team. The yeah. Jays are a playoff team. I'm not worried about that. Yeah,
1: and, and then the Leafs win the Stanley Cup, too. But, but let's the talk Leafs, about that. The <laughs> Leafs are a great team, and they suck. Did that hurt your feelings?
4: It, what hurt my feelings is that I that I said on power play with you that yeah. the Leafs would win the Stanley Cup. So yeah. now I I'm gonna have to eat my words on your radio show. So yeah, it's okay because uh,
1: I don't. No one like me. No one cares about your sports predictions. They, it's fun. It, it's it just it makes you relatable. <laughs> but what we care about is your politics. <laughs> That's your core mandate. Where you and I are are way over our skis. We love sports, but no one no one's listening. We're, we're fans. We're fans. <laughs> we're fans. We're okay, fans. We're not let, fans let, let, of politics. No, this we're not fans jobs. of both. This is our work. Uh, what do we look for tonight in the Ontario debate?
4: I well, I think to, you you made a very good point, Stephen Del Delhu. I mean that. Del Duca has one chance to introduce himself to the province. Yes, he was a cabinet minister in uh, Premier Kathleen Wynne's liberal government, but he's been a largely unknown commodity. It's not his fault. He became the leader of this party a week before COVID hit in March 2020. So he spent the last two years basically working behind the scenes because he hasn't been able to get any attention because all of the attention has been on doug ford and his government and justin trudeau and his government it's been about governments it hasn't been about opposition leaders so i think that that, that he has a, a, a an opportunity tonight to introduce himself to ontarians this is on every radio station and every uh, every talk radio station and on every uh, TV station uh, and news station tonight. So it's it's his last best hope to introduce himself to Ontarians and s- explain to him why he'd be better uh, than Doug Ford as Premier or right. at least better than Andrew Horvath as leader of the opposition.
1: Well, let's talk about strengths and weaknesses as, as I speak to you um, um... Robert Benzie from the Toronto Star. Ben's strengths and weaknesses. We'll start with Delhu, Del Duca, and then we'll go to Doug Ford. Um, Del Duca's brand of the Liberal Party, according to pollsters, the the Liberal Party polls high. He polls invisibly. What does he have to do to get it to punch through? I know he's got the buck a ride, and he's tried to do it on policy. But, you know, it's not like he's ever been accused of too much charisma in the past. What does he have to do on stage Uh tonight? I think he just has to show that he is competent
4: and capable. And I think that he was, he is competent and capable in terms of he was a cabinet minister in in senior roles in the wind government. He's been around politics for a very long time. Yes, he's not as well known as the other two major party leaders are. Mike Schreiner is the is the fourth leader on the stage tonight from the Greens. Um, but I, but I think because he's not that well known, it's a, it it gives him a chance to say, "Hey, here's who I am." Uh, here's a little bit about me, and here's my plan. Yeah, buck a ride for transit fares for a year and a half after we win. Um, uh, limiting the tax that you'd pay on on prepared meals so that you know going out for for lunch would be cheaper. A couple things like that that he's got on his on his uh, on his platform uh, that he can sell, and he can also say, "Look, Andrew Horvath is it's her fourth kick at the can," as you said. She's a known commodity, but she lost in 2011, she lost in 2014, and she lost in 2018. Each time she did better than the previous time, but she should have won and could have won the 2018 election. Uh, And I think because she didn't, I think then it's really, really difficult for her this time to say, I can win now. Because if she couldn't win against an unpopular liberal leader in Kathleen Wynne and a polarizing figure in Doug Ford, when are you going to win?
1: Well, that's it. Uh, she's got to do something. And, and, and look, Jack Layton took a while to become yeah, Jack Layton. He did, yeah. And, and maybe, you know, if she wins, all of a sudden it's, oh, Andrea Horvath, what a magic run, and persistence yeah. pays off. Um, and, and look, Jean Chrétien was yesterday's man, and then all of a sudden he was tomorrow's man. and Yeah, that and could G-
4: Gary Dewar in Manitoba, yes. as a New Democrat, lost a bunch of times before he won, and then he was a really good premier. So you're so, right. So They're... these
1: things happen, right? Uh, but let's talk about Doug Ford. I mean, He's cruising. This Doug Ford 2.0 is a significantly different guy. This is not the party that he that he sort of quickly took over four years ago and ran to the majority. Uh, almost, I, I could actually look through on everything from minimum wage to long term yeah. care to deficits. It's like a totally different guy. What what's happened and what's his value proposition to voters right now?
4: Well, I think what happened is, the, first of all, the pandemic happened. And and, and I, I know this is going to sound crass, but it was actually for Doug Ford, a very uh, important learning curve. Um, and he learned that government wasn't just about slogans and stickers and simplistic solutions to complex problems. He realized government has a vital role. now. His, it, the more right-wing voters in Ontario say, well, wait a minute, Doug Ford's not that conservative because he throws money at things. I mean, this is the biggest spending Ontario government in the history of Ontario, spending 25% more than wins Liberals did in their last year. A uh, huge deficit of $20 billion this year, which is an inflated one because they don't, wanna, they don't want to say no to anything. That's why he even says, we're the party of yes, which I don't know very many Conservatives who campaign oh, anywhere in this country saying, incredible. we're the party of yes,
1: you know? I mean, we're the party of yes that that basically is hugging Justin Trudeau. I mean, yeah, this is... Hugging,
4: hugging Justin Trudeau, hugging labor unions for the most private sector labor unions, but not the public sector ones as much. But they, they got another endorsement today from, a, from a, a private sector labor union. They've had, I think, three in this campaign so far. This is not the Mike Harris conservative party, but it's it, they're still doing some things that are, 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 to a lot of voters, troubling. Building highways, paving over uh, greenbelt lands... Um, things like that, contributing to urban sprawl, especially around the Greater Toronto Area, and I think that's something that that he, he'll face questions
1: about tonight. Um, but but he, he owns but he, the center, he, like as he, yeah. he has Doug Ford finally said, you know how to win Ontario? Be try to be like Bill Davis.
4: Yeah, get along with the federal government, work with them, but also be be you're right in the center in the sense that I mean he he would think of himself as a fiscal conservative if you asked him. If he did any interviews, because he doesn't do any interviews except with you know every so often he'll call a, a local radio station, uh, but he won't call them in any big markets. <laughs> Go figure. He's ne- never um, done an
1: interview here, by the way. I, I've, we've yeah, asked. All I know, the time. I know. Yeah,
4: he, and he won't do your TV show, and he won't do uh, the other the other uh, um, political TV shows. He Steve Paikin at
1: TVO, who's moderating the debate. Yeah. Apparently, is the first uh, yeah first premier that, since
4: John Robarts not yeah. to do an interview with TV Ontario. Um, He's done one. He did one piece with Martin Redcon, my colleague, uh, but it was a Ryerson University piece. It was not a. It was not a Toronto Star thing. So yeah, he's not. He's not the accessible Doug Ford that he was before. Uh, I mean, in, before he was in politics, you could call him up and do an interview with him anytime you wanted. Yeah. He uh, he is, however, uh, more surrounded by smarter advisors than he was before he got rid of the, you know the, the 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 first team that he had after 2018 was not very effective this team now is much more effective and frankly if he'd stuck with Dean French, his former chief of staff, and others, he probably wouldn't even be the PC leader anymore. The caucus would have run him out of town by now. And if he'd and if, if, if he ha- managed to hang on, he wouldn't have been certainly running uh, with a lead in the polls right now because the pandemic would not have gone as it well. Jamie Wallace, his chief of staff, uh, Corey Tanaik and the other campaign people around him, these are much more effective professional people yeah. than he had in 2018.
1: It's going to be big stakes tonight. Again, Doug Ford's the front runner. And uh, he has a way of not making major errors on these things, but a major error can change this thing. And but we'll yeah. find out. Um, I don't know if he's a leaf. Uh, I know he's a leaf fan. I don't know if yeah, he, he's uh, a he's a leaf fan. The Leafs but you know what three happened? two. The, 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 I, the totally. Tories, the Tories wanted.
4: The, the Tories were, were yeah. upset that the Leafs got knocked out for a couple reasons. First of all, they're yeah. leaf fans, a lot of them, uh, like I am. But and I know you're not. Well, <laughs> I, I got ten seconds. Here. Go. Uh, but they wanted people to be talking about the Leafs not yeah. talking about politics. But now, that people right now are engaged, they're talking that about not
1: politics. Be Robert <laughs> Benzi, you're always talking about politics. We'll take a break.
0: Talking to the newsmakers every day. The conversation continues with Evan Solomon.
1: So many Canadians cross the border to Buffalo, New York, to shop. Many people live there. You go there to watch football games. You go there to watch, last year, to watch Blue Jay games. The top supermarket is popular, and that's where an 18-year-old, whose name I will not dignify today, there are reasons in the end to dignify, to, to not dignify. There are reasons to use the name when you're trying to understand motives of the shooter. I understand that, but when you're talking about the 13 people he shot and killed 10 people, 11 of them black, he was a racist, he is a racist, he's still alive, he's in custody, he live streamed it, he selected black Americans because he's a racist, he believes in a debunked horrific theory called white replacement theory, he's an anti-Semite as his horrific manifesto reveal. But these are ideas that he's talking about that have led to massacres in places like Christchurch, New Zealand, and they're mainstream. And the idea that these are just lone gunmen, these are people who are marinating in theories of hate that are becoming mainstream. And nobody knows this more than Sherry Darlene, the founder of Justice for Black Lives in the Niagara region. She was born in Buffalo. She grew up in Niagara Falls. These communities are almost twin communities. Her father shops where at the top supermarket where the massacre happened. Today, Sherry joins me now. Hi, Sherry. Hi, how are you? Crappy, how are you? I mean, like, right? How are any of yeah. us after this? Uh, what was yeah. your reaction when you, saw, when you heard the, the horrific news? um i my heart
5: just sank i I immediately um ran to the phone to call my father because i didn't know what was going on i was outside enjoying the weather doing lawn work and my phone just started ringing saying you need to call you need to call your family you need to call and check in and there was and i still didn't know the extent of it and as the information trickled in and i did get a hold of my dad he did explain to us because i know he's always at tops for no apparent reason my father likes to go to tops, if not every day, every other day, sometimes twice a day. Wow. Yeah well you know what one thing is the minute I realized the gravity, the gravity of the whole thing, the first thing that came to my mind was there is always a lot of elderly people in that top, always. It's almost when I go, I'm in Buffalo, Every other weekend, if not every weekend, all the time, when I go, I have to mentally prepare myself to go in with patients because there always is someone of elderly shuffling in front of me or, you know, can you grab that for me, honey? Can you, you know, how much does that say? So there is always, always a lot of elderly in this particular tops all the time. And that's what is just absolutely heartbreaking about this.
1: Not just that, it's like, I just want to, let me play you Ben Crump. You know, Ben, he's the attorney for Mm -hmm. one of the victims. Here's what he just said. Here's what Ben Crump, who just held a news conference this morning, said about the root of hate. The people who curate the hate, the people who inspire
6: the hate on websites and cable news stations, who radicalize these young people to go out and orchestrate heinous acts of violence. That is what we have to do. We have to get to the root of the hate.
1: Mm-hmm. What is the root of the hate uh, in your view, Sherry, Dar- Sherry Darlene? Um,
6: well, I know
5: this is going to be hard to hear, and that's kind of um, what I've been known for, to be a little rough around the edges, but I completely understand because white people don't realize you've been socialized to believe in your superiority. You don't even know what's been done to you. Um, Whether you tap into it or not, that's completely up to you. But it is actual, factual, proven fact that, yes, that white supremacy is, is within you. It's in your everything that you do. And that's where it comes from. Racism is the white man's baby. It's not ours. It's your dog. We do not hone it. We do not nurture it. Racism is alive and well today, not because we teach it to our children, because... It's been taught generation after generation after generation, and it's not us that's doing it. White people need to sit down and start having conversations with other white people. You cannot tell me that anybody that knows this boy, that interacted with this boy, was not surprised to look up and see him on TV and know what he did. And this is the type of thing you have to start opening your mouth. I understand a lot of people are not confrontational or they just don't want to get involved. They may not agree with it, but they sit silently. Mm. And that's so, all about Sh-
1: Sherry, first of all, you got to... Sp- You got to speak our truth here, and 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 this is listen. uh, As I'm a white guy, I'm Jewish, and Jews Mm -hmm. have often said the Holocaust is a Christian problem. Mm -hmm. But so I understand these issues, okay? Mm -hmm. But but what do you say to people who are listening who said, "Wait a second, I I, I'm an ally here. I am Mm -hmm. not. I I, this is the most repugnant." And then there's Mm -hmm. many many people out there who who are white people or or people of different color who are saying, I'm an ally the racism of any kind, hate of any kind is despicable. It's condemnable. It's illegal. It's horrible. I condemn it. And I am not an ally in any subconscious way with a mass murderer.
5: What I say to you is that's beautiful. That's wonderful. But your boots have to hit the ground. This is not something that you can just sit at home and not agree with. If you cannot see that work needs to be done, you have to come and link arms with a person like me. And I welcome you. I welcome my allies. We sit, we talk, we we take on this fight together. If that's how you really feel, if it really sickens you, then hit the ground and it's not easy work. You better have thin, thick skin. You're going to have family members that turn their back on you. You're going to be surprised when you see how insidious and how deep this goes. But if you can, you know, if you want to take on that fight, we'll have you justiceforblacklives.com. We have, we hold book clubs. We have these very tough, difficult conversations and we mean to educate people because that's the only way to combat ignorance.
1: White replacement theory. Hmm. Is it mainstream?
5: Um, I, I feel like it is. I feel like it, uh, we were just talking about this, mo- this morning with a few of my girlfriends, how ironic it is that, um, isn't it kind of what? would they feel more comfortable if we call it colonization? Because it kind of feels like it's what they've done their whole lives, <laughs> And now they're afraid it's going to be done to them. So they're going to, you know, it's kind of the same thing. And it, like I said, if anybody's watching what's going on in the world, especially with race relations, it's scary. We're. It seems like we're going backwards.
1: Going back, just tell me, why, let me just ask you, because the law, I mean, it's hard, I'm not, in any way going to suggest there's no institutionalized racism. There is. Uh, I'm not trying to get into a debate about that because Mm -hmm. uh, that's not where I'm at. But the law, uh, you know, like, you know, when our parents and grandparents grew up, there was... There were laws that were inherently racist, you know, no blacks, Mm -hmm. no Jews, no Italians, like you get it, right? There were quotas at schools, there were separate, but the the law now has changed for that. Now, of course, women are paid less and there's all sorts of realities, but there are legal recourses. Is that not part of the right direction in some ways?
5: I mean, if we had... If we didn't have the bad apples, and, that, and that's a kind of what black people, we've been saying for years. Yeah, these laws were implemented, but how often are they followed down to the, you know, they're not, the laws weren't made for us. They weren't made, they were made to, you know, skirt around the real issue. We cannot have racist judges, police officers, teachers, lawyers. We can't have that, and we have that, and that's what a lot of people, especially white people, don't want to accept. We know but we, but we accept, matter.
1: like, like I, again, I'm not speaking on behalf of white people at, mm-hmm. at all. I, I'm not. I'm just trying, I'm trying to have a dialogue, which is so, this is why I love having this, you on, because the dialogue's real. But the law yeah. is the first step, right? Like, we need that. We got to have equality in law and justice. So, because systems, like, h- human beings are flawed. They fail all the time. But the, the you know, the kind of arc of history should bend towards justice if there is actually a ju- an institutionalized justice system, No.
5: This is correct, but the system wasn't designed for brown people. It was designed to work for people that look like you, not me or my son or my father or my brother. And we all know that. And I think even the good white people know that, which is why they picked up the fight in the courtrooms and things like that. That's what we're trying to desperately explain is that, yeah, the laws have changed, but they're not to benefit us. It just make things a little bit better. But are they right? No, absolutely not. How is it that a black person and a white person commit the same crime, but the black man gets or the black woman gets way more time than the white yeah, person? Like yeah. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. We yeah. know it's still unfair and unbalanced.
1: Well, you're, you're not wrong about that. Sherry Darlene, founder of Justice for Black Lives in the Niagara region in the wake of the tragedy there. Sherry, I, I, I appreciate this conversation very much. Thank you. Thank you for having
5: me. We're
1: going to take a short break. Kim Campbell, the former prime minister of Canada on the abortion fight next. You don't want to miss what she has to say. She's fought this for a long time.
0: When important decisions are made, we report. Here's Evan Solomon.
1: The abortion debate, of course, was kicked off A long time ago in Canada, but 1988 of the Morgenthaler decision was key. After that, the progressive conservative Brian Mulroney-led government introduced something called Bill C-43 in the early 90s. um, And it actually was going to recriminalize abortion, two-year jail terms for doctors who performed abortions when a pregnant person's life was not at risk. But actually, you could also get an abortion if you had a request for it. The justice minister at the time was Kim Campbell. The bill was tied and died in the Senate in 1991. Now, Kim Campbell was roasted by both sides on this. Those who were anti-abortion said this was going to be abortion on demand, and those who were pro-choice said this was going to be recriminalizing abortion. She was openly pro-choice at the time. But in the wake of the Supreme Court of the U.S., about to roll back the key Roe v. Wade legal decision, which legalized abortion in the U.S., could rights be rolled back in Canada? Well, the debate is on. And I spoke to Kim Campbell about that. She went on to become the prime minister, as you know. I said, what was your reaction when you saw the U.S., the leaked opinion that said that the Supreme Court's going to roll back Roe v. Wade? Is there a danger that this could spill over into Canada?
7: Well, I don't know if there is, um, but I think... What's interesting is what has happened since Roe v. Wade um, and what we're seeing in terms of the resurgence of very right-wing, uh, socially very conservative views uh, with power in the United States in areas that used to used to be marginal, uh, now getting uh, footholds in state legislatures. And we see now that quite a number of states have... Uh, uh, what they call it, uh, trigger laws—laws laws that are, are very, very draconian about abortion—that will be triggered if Roe v. Wade is overturned, so that it's no longer the constitutional bulwark. And I think what's interesting is that you know I think Alito's—I think his opinion was just awful. I think it's ahistorical. I mean, just it, it's really quite, quite terrible and quite and quite frightening in a way, um, and um, and and very different from the kind of conversations that we've had in Canada about
1: this issue. As you know now, there is no law in Canada that essentially protects the right to an abortion. Abortion has been decriminalized. um, And we'll get to what happened uh, back in 1991 when you were the Justice Minister. In your view, should the Prime Minister put forward legislation? Is legislation needed in Canada? Or could that have a kind of unanticipated consequence of leading to restrictions on abortion what's your view on on how important it is
7: well there's several things first of all i think that generally speaking as with the united states i think that that canadian public opinion basically supports the policy that exists now that that abortion is uh, a safe uh, medical procedure not universally i mean there are some that there aren't wrinkles across the country that maybe a clarification of it would, would make right. sense um, and the government of Canada might be the best equipped to do that. I think that if there is a perception that there could be a tax on Canadian abortion rights, then I think the government might have to gird its loins and try and legislate something that would clarify things.
1: Legislation is complicated. You know this better than anyone else. But during the 2021 federal election, the Liberals pledged to establish regulations under the Canada Health Act governing accessibility for sexual and reproductive health services. So there's no question that no matter where someone lives, they have access to publicly available sexual and reproductive health services. Okay, this is the act. Look, the Canada Health Act is supposed to protect universality. The data is that there is not universality. People in rural areas of Canada do not have access. Some provinces have more access, maybe in Quebec, Ontario, than, say, New Brunswick or Manitoba. Um, In your view, should the government, instead of getting into the the hornet's nest of legislation, be flexing its muscles more with the Canada Health Act?
7: Well, you know, it wasn't something that we considered in my day, but, yes, it certainly could be used. It's certainly within the federal government's power. But remember that the Canada Health Act is much resented by a lot of the provinces because actually delivery of health care is a provincial jurisdiction. And uh, you know, the Canada Health Act is one of those areas where the federal government uses the spending power to intrude in areas of provincial jurisdiction. So if they do it, you know, they may get pushback from some of the provinces. Although sometimes when areas are very divisive, people are grateful when either the courts or some other level of government makes the decision and they don't have to get into it. They say, nothing we can do about it. The courts have said this or yeah you know, you know, we, we hate about the federal government, that bad old national, you know, Canada held back to mean, what could we do, Obama? You know, so they might actually be grateful to have the government of Canada clarify
1: it. Let, let me move on to a couple other things. There's a leadership race in the Conservative Party of Canada. One of the leading candidates, Pierre Poilievre, has said if he was elected prime minister, he would fire the governor of the Bank of Canada. Uh, there's been a lot of debate about whether or not the in, this... Um, destroys the independence of a key monetary institution like the bank. Um, do your, what's your view on that? Should candidates be saying that they would fire the governor of the Bank of Canada?
7: Well, you have to make a pretty strong case for wanting to do that. And, um, and I don't think, you know, a lot of people like to say, like, look, I'm going to be so strong and be a powerful leader. Um, no, Nobody should be above accountability, but when people are appointed to hold independent positions, you need to suck it up and respect that unless there is clear evidence that what they are doing is either incompetent or done in bad faith or, or, or dangerous. So, you know, like... Uh, these leadership well, the argument, is, are, the,
1: the argument oh. is the argument is the governor had a target of two percent inflation at six point seven percent. I guess Mr. Paulie says that's incompetence. Um, I know there is actually a bar. Oh golly, yeah, he should have predicted. You know the disruptions of the COVID supply chains
7: and the war in Ukraine, right? Yeah, get rid of the get rid of the dude. He's uh, you know he's he's not he's not consulting his tarot cards. Grow oh,
1: up. Do you, do you think it's corrosive to institutions?
7: I think it is. I do think it is. I think, I think if you're a member of parliament, there are other things that you could address yourself to to address the problems of inflation uh, rather than the, uh, mm. the governor of the Bank of Canada.
1: You know this well, after the, your time as Prime Minister and the rise of the Reform Party, um, how the Conservative movement has split, it's come back together, it's split. I mean, you, you've watched this movie a couple times. Uh, just in a general sense, is the Conservative movement, uh, some people say there's a battle for the soul of the Conservative Party right now. Do you see it that way?
7: Well, that makes the assumption
1: that there's a soul there. What do you mean by that? That's interesting.
7: I just, you know, I'm sorry, if you're not worried about climate change and you're not worried about resurgent authoritarianism and you're not a champion of the rights of women to make the contributions they need to make in society, I'm not interested And climate change is the non-negotiable thing for
1: me. We've got a war in Ukraine and debates about no-fly zones. You've got the abortion debate back. We've got debates about climate. Um, and we've got real concerns about political divisions. I mean, divisions that are that are deep. Um, if you you know, the Conservative Party is going through a leadership race. You know, you're the former Conservative Prime Minister. Any advice on how the party ought to deal with those fundamental issues?
7: Well, it ought to deal with them. You know, I mean, it ought to not stick its head in the sand, and it ought to show leadership. You know, can I, you know? We talked about abortion. We talked about gun control. I dealt with a lot of issues. That nobody in their right mind would choose to deal with, but they had to be dealt with. When Mark Lepine went into a cold polytechnique and murdered fourteen women engineering students, they 19. just put the gun control issue right up on the top of the agenda. So I couldn't say, "Well, oh, I don't really want to deal with that." You know, that's that's your job, and to try and show leadership and to try and create the best public policy you can.
1: Former Prime Minister Kim Campbell and Gentlemen's Words. We got to deal with it. You know the one thing that, of well, the many things she said, um, and it's fascinating to to, to listen to her. Um, deal with the hard issues, even if they're not popular. But one thing she tried to do on the abortion debate when she was a the justice minister, and this is fascinating. She was pro-choice, but she tried to build consensus. My goodness, how about a politician not just dividing us, but trying to actually find ways to even on polarizing issues, bring people together. But I want to know in the wake of Buffalo, do those shootings make you feel more vulnerable? 1-855-633-1010, I want your thoughts on that next.
0: Helping you through these unique times,
1: This is The Evan Solomon Show. Welcome back to the uh, program. We're going to end with your thoughts. The shooting in Buffalo, New York, where 13 people were shot, 11 of them black, targeted by a killer who was openly racist, anti-Semitic, left a track, tried to live stream it, just a disgrace, horrific. I just want to know for you if this kind of rhetoric about white replacement theory and these massacres, does it make you feel more vulnerable here in Canada, less vulnerable? Is it exposing something? Is it saying something that you think it needs to be said that we gotta acknowledge or not? I really want to try to figure out the impact on Canada on these things. 1-855-633-1010. one 855 1010 Seven ten ten. Now, when we spoke about this earlier, and I spoke to an an activist who has worked in this field, Sherry Darlene, the founder of Justice for Black Lives in the Niagara region, she talked about white supremacy. And I am. We had a really frank conversation. I, I said, you know, there's many people who are white, like me, who abhor this, and we don't want to be lumped together. But she said, inherently, you're part of the problem. And... A lot of people, one 855 kick back or text me at seven ten ten, And a lot of people said, oh, Evan, you're a liberal. Would, the show's too liberal for me. Can I just say one thing? Uh, Evan, um, let me just read some of these notes. Um, Evan, as a white male conservative, I indirectly feel more vulnerable when establishment liberals want to capitalize on the tragedy and further demonize people of a different um, opinion. The left is the party of purple hair, people who think men can have babies. Evan, your talking points are disgraceful every day. You have no response. You live in an echo chamber of liberal ideas living in Toronto. You honestly have the dumbest points of view I've ever heard. You are a spoon-fed liberal Evan. Can I just correct a couple things here about the show? I'm just going to do what I like to call for fact's sake, I don't live in Toronto. Just for the record, I live in Ottawa. Number two, let me just show you the liberal lineup today that this person, this is how this is on our national show today. I've been accused of being, this is the liberal point of view. I had Michelle Rempel Garner, longtime conservative MP for a full segment. I had two segments of Patrick Brown, who's running to lead the Conservative Party of Canada and was a conservative party. Member and was the leader of the Progressive Conservative Party. Two blocks of that. I had Kim Campbell on, the first conservative female prime minister and a conservative member of parliament and a conservative prime minister. I'm just trying to count how many liberals I had on today. Zero. Right. like, But this is what's going on. Like, oh, you don't like the opinion? You're a liberal. Like, relax, pal. Just... Stick to I literally had Michelle rumpel Garner, two blocks of Patrick Brown. I had four blocks of this show today, exclusively of people who have been elected as conservatives. But still that's too liberal for you. Too liberal for you. Like, just take a breathe, take a deep breath, pal. We try to throw balls and strikes here. You're not gonna agree with every segment. But when you're so crazily off base to say this is too liberal a show for you, when basically the entire show has been elected conservatives, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know how much more balanced you need. Let's take a call. Like I just, it's really hard to figure out. Uh, let's take some calls. Nick, Nick, who do I have here? I got Jeff. What's up?
6: Hi, Evan. You know your frustration that I hear in your voice there. It's just the tip of the iceberg. This, what has happened to our politics now? They're not no longer opponents of conservatives. They are the enemy of conservatives. And when you have the three most popular TV shows in America, hosted by people who are racist, bigots, pushing this replacement therapy thing, or whatever the theory, theory that people yeah. want to replace white people, this is going to happen more often. And Canada lags America in certain um, areas, especially with its violence. But it's coming here. When you have politicians here playing footsie with white supremacists and racists, this is coming here. And it makes me very fearful of the future. I have three young boy children and four young male grandchildren, all black. This is fearful for me because. This is not going to end. We have politicians and leaders and hosts, major hosts and stuff pushing this nonsense about black people who want to take white people's possessions and stuff. This is not going to end. It's going to get worse, and it's coming. Je- up.
1: Jeff, let me let me just tell you, I, I, you you are not you are right. That, and I think Michelle Rumpel Garner said it. Now you're saying it. Now I'm saying it. You know, you push that stuff, and, and there's a consequence to it because it. It, it, it's frightening stuff, and it's baseless stuff, and I totally hear you, Jeff. I appreciate the, I appreciate just, the call. Just,
6: just let me say one quick thing. Just how the Taliban radicalized young Muslim men, we have TV hosts and radio hosts radicalizing young white men to do the same thing the Taliban had young Muslim men do. It's terrible.
1: Jeff, I appreciate the call. Um Nick, in in Montreal, does this stuff make well, you feel I'm, more vulnerable or not?
8: Well, not really, because, uh, yeah, you know, there's a lot of things happening around the world and even here in Canada, and, you know, I, I see what I see, you know, I'm like I'm 67 years old, and I, I you know, I used to be a liberal, and I, I noticed that right now uh, we're losing our democracy. I mean, like, there's no, like, we're voting... Well, how politics. are we
1: losing our democracy?
8: Well, let me, let me explain. Let me finish. Uh, it's because what's happening here is basically the people should not be afraid of the government. The government should be afraid of the people. So, like they 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 pass these uh, these laws. I understand we vote for them, or whatever the case may be. But I understand your frustrations about which callers they call you. But you know, most of the callers are call you; they're right because you know you're slightly defending the liberal party indirectly. And I understand if you're a liberal,
1: that's cool. I, I, no problem. Well, what makes what but, makes you think that? I'm just, I'm just trying. To, I like I, I, I,
7: well, I just because I don't
1: well. agree with you. Therefore, I'm a, like I'm no, no, just trying. No, what no, is no, it?
8: No, 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 it's not that. It's because I, I heard. You know, I, I listen to you, and there are some people. Uh, Talk about uh, Pluto, and you defend him in a way like, uh, let's face it, Uh, he's the most narcissistic uh, prime minister we ever had in the history of Canada. And now, just last point, I asked for what happened in Buffalo, and in my point of view, this is my point of view. That's the red flag. You know, the Democrats trying to get rid of the second amendment and you know
1: it always happens happens no no sorry but hey hey can i just say something listen and i I appreciate your point of view but i'm telling you what i'm not going to do when 10 people are gunned down in a massacre and they're selected from their race i'll tell you what i'm not going to do in the show and i'm going to stop it i'm not going to say this is a political false flag event so democrats can politicize it let's be very careful here this is a massacre of human beings, and you're the one politicizing it. Call it what it is. It's a massacre. There's real issues to discuss, but don't blame Democrats or Republicans. There's a massacre here. It's not a false flag event. It's human life. Let's have the courage to condemn hate when it leads to massacre. I'll See you tomorrow.